Every story needs a hero, and every story needs a villain. If you're here after the superhero episode, initially it was going to be episode six, but what happened was there was a lot to talk about, and it ended up being like 45 minutes from start to finish, which is way too long. So I decided to split it up like two-face. We put the superheroes in the first episode, episode six, and now we're going to do episode seven, which focuses solely on the villains. There's a lot to talk about when you start digging up the psychology of superheroes and villains. Um, and it, I mean, this has been a blast, like reading up on uh, all the th- villains and superheroes that I grew up with as a kid, and then diving into their psychology and trying to make little profiles for each one. So villains are our favorites. We love villains so much. <laughs> they, they do what we can't. They do. If you think about a villain in a movie, they usually come across as cool and cunning and calculated and British. I don't know who decided British people were evil, but if I have any listeners from the UK, I'm sure you're all very lovely people. And I'm not sure why Hollywood decided that you guys are awful for whatever reasons. Last I checked, uh, a lot of the villains in the world typically come from the U.S. because our politicians suck and we have a lot of corrupt businessmen. Those are the real-life villains. The Faithful 14 across the pond. I don't know why you guys are picked on by Hollywood, but maybe it's because you're just kind of cool. You know, you look at uh, Luke Evans in the Fast and the Furious 6, where he leads a team against um, Vin Diesel's team. And Luke Evans is like the epitome of the intelligent British villain, right? He uh, speaks very profound. He's very precise. Uh, He has a lot of, you know, deep motivation of why he's doing what he's doing. Comic book villains, though, because we want to keep it on the comic book side of things, uh, from a psychological perspective, we the views of what drives our enduring interest in them varies from heroes to bad guys. Carl Jung, the father of it all, uh, of course, talked about shadow confrontation. It's why I've made this podcast in the first place. He's all about confronting that shadow within ourselves uh, to unleash possible new strengths that we have. As where unhealthy attempts to confront may involve dwelling on the worst parts of ourselves, which the Joker tried to get Batman and Harvey Dent to do in The Dark Knight. Now, speaking of Carl Jung, his counterpart, Sigmund Freud, who was uh, Jung's, uh, let's say his cohort in a way, viewed human nature as inherently antisocial and born to be bad, but held back by society. Even if the psyche fully develops its ego, which is the source of self-control, of course, and the superego, which is conscience, uh, Freudians still say the ID still dwells underneath and it's uh, wishes for many selfish things. So it would love to be a supervillain deep down, which is very true. I think, I think everybody that appreciates villains understands that they do what we can't if I told you right now 
you could rob a bank and get away with it and hurt no one and get all the money, would you do it? Would you? I would. (laughs) Why not? Why not do it point break style, put on a presidential mask, say a few cool one-liners, grab the loot and go, and then you're surfing all summer. I would. I mean, I'm being completely honest with you here. I'm not saying go out and rob a bank, but I mean, if you put it like that, wait, I don't hurt anybody. I get all this money. I get the adrenaline rush. I get to hang out with Patrick Swayze via 1991. That sounds like a good gig, Drew. It is. It is. From my mountain climbing, skydiving ass, I'd be all about it. And I think a lot of people would as well. But we tend to cherry pick all the traits of villains we like, all the fun ones and the cool ones, and we leave out all the horrible and horrific character flaws. (laughs) We don't want to admit that there's something wrong with us for liking the dark side of things. I have no problem embracing the dark side of myself. It's You learn the most by doing so, and sometimes it's even fun to do so because it's a challenge uh, to try to balance them out. So there was a uh, psychologist, his name was Abraham Maslow. He held that people who haven't had their most basic needs met will have a difficult time maturing. For example, if uh, you're starving uh, for a long time, you're unlikely to feel secure. Start for love and companionship, you'll have trouble building self-esteem. And those who dwell on those shortcomings may end up having envy and jealousy for those who have more than they do. People who are unable to overcome those shortcomings end up fantasizing about obtaining it by any means, good or bad, to satisfy every need and greed. I just sounded like that movie guy. (laughs) One man seeking revenge. I'd probably do that for a living if I needed to. But that's probably my friend Marcio's gig, more than mine. Marcio, if you're listening, you're kicking ass, bro. Keep doing what you're doing. So when it comes to villains, let's get down to the list because we got a good one here. And what better list than to start with the Joker? He is probably the most famous of all villains. Now, the Joker kind of defies diagnosis uh, besides the fact that he's sociopathic, psychotic, he doesn't really match any one specific mental illness. Uh, he doesn't really have delusions or, uh, or any hallucinations. When he wants to do chaos, he does it because he likes it. Not because he thinks that you're like a demon or anything like that. It's because he doesn't understand hope, optimism. Yeah, he kind of resents those feelings and tries to crush them by bringing out the worst in others. And he wants to leave his mark on Gotham in the process. So, what version of Joker are we talking about? Well, let's go ahead and list a few of them. The Joker has, for a large part of the century, I talked about the last hundred years, was a jokester, no pun intended, kind of a yuckster. He did dastardly deeds, but nothing really downright vicious. Cesar Romero from the old TV show with Adam West was kind of in the same way. He laughed a lot and kind of flamboyant and would like, I don't know, he'd kidnap a mayor, but really wouldn't do anything with him. 
I don't think it was really until the late 80s with Jack Nicholson as the Joker in the first Batman movie where he started getting a little sinister. The real point where he did was in the graphic novel Death in the Family where he beat Robin to death with a crowbar. I remember reading that as a kid and I was like mortified. I'm like, oh my God. It wasn't just like one whack. Like he bludgeoned Robin probably somewhere thereabouts of... 50 times with a crowbar. And then he blew up the building that Robin was in to make sure he was dead. Kind of messed up, man. Kind of messed up. <laughs> a lot of me, and my friends, when we were young, were like, oh, God, man, Joker's what a dick. So after that, Joker just got worse and worse. And eventually, the graphic novels depicted him uh, as like a drug addict. Um, just a vile murderer in the Killing Joke graphic novel. He ended up shooting uh, Barbara Gordon, which is Commissioner Gordon's daughter, uh, and paralyzing her, and then kidnapped Commissioner Gordon and uh, tortured him psychologically for the remainder of the graphic novel. And then after that, just in the movies with Heath Ledger, of course, we know what we got with that, which was an outstanding performance of a guy who's just off his rocker. So what's crazy about Joker is he fears Batman dying because if Batman's dead, he kind of doesn't have his yin to his yang, so to speak. Like as Heath Ledger said in the movie, kill you? I don't want to kill you. What would I do without you? Spur the moment impression there for you. But yeah, what would he do without him? He basically likes tormenting Batman, but he doesn't want him dead. So... That's kind of like the ongoing thing with the Joker. That's where his turmoil is. He wants to keep doing chaos and he likes Batman trying to catch him. But if he doesn't have anyone trying to catch him, they doesn't feel like he has an actual challenge to what he's doing. Now we got to touch on his girlfriend for a moment, Harley Quinn, because she actually has some stuff related to Batman as well. Harley Quinn originally was a doctor that went kind of crazy ended up helping the Joker end up escaping. And she has played the role of the enabler in their dysfunctional relationship for a very long time. I am not talking about the movie Harley Quinn. The modern Harley Quinn in the movies has been depicted as female empowerment and an anti-hero. In the comics, that is not so. She is so scarred up from Joker basically like ignoring her or letting her get caught or mocking her or making fun of her that she basically has taken on the role of masochist or a sub, but the torture thrills her and she's like all about it. Um, cause as she kind of thinks that maybe one day the Joker will end up really falling in love with her and it doesn't happen. He just uses her over and over again. So she has the victim, uh, victim mentality that has formed into a shame and a prisoner complex for getting down to it. Batman views her as a daughter figure and she has a slight sexual fixation with him, which makes for a very awkward relationship. Batman tends to feel guilty that she is the way she is because she's a product of what he cannot stop. So that's as far as how she interacts with Batman, you know, he tries to turn her and she kind of sticks with Joker, but if her view of uh, warped, if her view is warped enough to qualify as psychotic and there's nothing in her history suggests that she's been psychotic before hooking up with the Joker, she might suffer from a shared 
psychotic disorder where she picks up uh, all of Joker's inclinations. But there is the fact that eventually she does earn a death sentence for killing Joker's prosecutor and indicates that the law finally deems her sane enough to die. Didn't end well for Harley Quinn in some of the comics. So then we have to go to some more of Batman's rogues gallery friends. Catwoman. Let's talk about her for a second. I love this line. She is the naughty subconscious shadow we all flirt with. Yeah, that sounds smooth. She's a kleptomaniac, but not that she needs to steal to fulfill something. She actually wants to steal. She enjoys the thrill. She enjoys stealing from those who have more than they need. She has her own dysfunctions, but she actually really doesn't have many true mental issues other than that. She does have a moral gray area. She is a social climber as Selena Kyle, and she uses Selena Kyle to kind of stake people out to figure out what they have that she can get from them. And of course, of course, she has kind of an ongoing thing with Batman. It's been documented for a very, very long time. Uh, they both have the duality thing. They both have their shadow side. They both you know, use their alter egos to try to cope with the shadow side. And I mean, it, of course, Bruce Wayne has a horrible time with relationships in his personal life. So it only makes sense that him and Selena Kyle kind of try to hook up from time to time. They're both dysfunctional and they probably have issues seeing red flags when it comes to dating. I'd imagine Two-Face, let's talk about him uh, to get back on track. Two-Face, he doesn't have multiple personalities. Um, That should be stated. He actually has something known as disassociative identity disorder. With that, we'll call it uh, DID or DID, the good side of Harvey takes control for a certain amount of time and his bad side would have its time as well. They kind of bounce back and forth, but it's more or less the same identity that kind of splits a little bit. Uh, He uses a coin toss to execute uh, his plans, unleashing chaos on Gotham. And he doesn't care what he does as long as he gets to do something. Also, having the ruptured psyche doesn't help, uh, and he has duality defined. Once a white knight of Gotham, as they said in The Dark Knight, he basically thinks he's judge, jury, and executioner, more or less. So kind of a god complex. Uh, but at the base of it is anger for what happened to him to turn him into what he is. Let's see here. Any more from the rogues gallery on my list? I got a few. We should talk about Poison Ivy real quick because I think Poison Ivy is interesting. Poison Ivy didn't receive much love or empathy growing up, and that would basically be filed in her parent issues. She ends up developing her own compassion and love by loving plants because they won't reject her or leave her or abandon her. So she's kind of like an eco-terrorist of sorts. She'll do anything for them. Doesn't mean she's crazy, necessarily. She doesn't really have any sort of delusions about what she is. She just thinks that she really feels something for plants. Interesting enough, Poison Ivy has a friendship with Harley Quinn in, in the comics. And it kind of helps ground Ivy a little bit, uh, connecting her back to a social circle or humanity. Uh, but because Ivy thinks more sensibly when 
faced with Harley's irrationality. So that's, they kind of are tied in a little bit. Riddler, uh, real quick, he's got obsessive compulsive disorder. Definitely a narcissist. He wants to pull uh, off these heists and these big plans and everything, but he cannot do it without getting some sort of validation or being seen doing it. He wants to leave his mark no matter what, and he can't not do it. He's tried and it just doesn't work. He always has to leave that riddle at the scene of the crime and everyone's like, oh, this is the Riddler. And that's his, that's his shtick. So because of that, he always ends up getting caught. So he's a shitty criminal, more or less. More or less. Uh, let's see here. Should we venture outside of the rogues gallery real quick? Why not? Let's go there uh, with Loki. Loki, which is Thor's brother in the Avenger uh Marvel Cinematic Universe and the Avengers Universe. He is INFJ gone bad. <laughs> INFJs typically have uh, duality issues as Loki does. Uh, he has his ability to try to side with Thor on occasion, but for the most part, he likes to stick with doing mischief and bad things. He'll only try to side with Thor if there's some sort of end game for him or he gets something out of it. So it's not all entirely good when he does it. It's more of a, yeah, I'll help you, but what's in it for me? He spends uh, a lot of his time alone making his master plans, and he's able to identify other people's weaknesses and manipulates them, which is a very good villain trait. He does feel kind of slighted by his family. Now, remember, he was not born in Asgard, if you remember the films. He was uh, from Jotunheim, and he's a little frost baby. He's actually blue. He's not Thor's brother, unless you consider it more of an adoption sort of thing. So he has a lot of anger towards Odin and Thor because he feels less than. So he has an inferiority complex. And he obviously has some sort of feelings of unloved. And he uses those as means of revenge against Thor in general. That's why they battle in the comics a whole lot. But in the movie, they eventually made him kind of an anti-hero because he's fun in the movies. But comics, a little bit different than that. Finally, let's get to Bucky Barnes, who has an interesting cycle. He started good. This is the Winter Soldier, if you're not sure. Captain America's best friend turned assassin. Bucky Barnes was uh, Steve Rogers' best friend in his youth, gets captured and reprogrammed into a master assassin, ends up killing a whole lot of people ends up killing Tony Stark's parents in the movies, I should add. And eventually him and Steve Rogers battle and duel slowly, but surely Bucky Barnes remembers who he is, which could be a metaphor of a shadow self or a dark villainous self, remembering the good in his life and working to integrate with it. So he eventually goes from good to bad back to good. And that's where he's at right now in his movie character arc. I haven't read the comics in a while, but I'm pretty sure that the winter soldier is still a good guy at this point, but there is some psychology behind it because he had to figure out who he was at his core instead of being who the bad guys told him he was. So that is a good way of looking at persona, shadow self, integration to work in the favor of the person. We could be here all day. I could talk about this for hours, but we are already at the 21 minute mark. <laughs> so 
we're going to have to maybe pick one superhero and do like a focused psychological profile. I'd love to do it on the Punisher someday because Frank Castle is just chocked full of good stuff. Maybe Tony Stark, maybe Wolverine, but we'll have to do this down the road. This was fun building little profiles for, for these, uh, these villains, for these superheroes between the two episodes. So let's get back to the good stuff. We're going to get back to the dark stuff. But thanks for listening for episode seven. This was the villain episode of Hero and the Villain. I am Drew. We'll see you soon. <laughs>